Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloading Podcast Plus Edition. This week my guest on Rugby Reloading Plus is Mike Rylance, whose new book, The Struggle and the Daring, The Remaking of French Rugby League, looks at the history of the French game from the end of World War II. It's a follow-up to his classic book, The Forbidden Game, which for the first time told the complete story of the birth of rugby league in France, its fantastic rise in the 1930s and its banning by the wartime collaborationist government in Vichy. Mike's new book is also highly recommended and hopefully our chat will whet your appetite to read it. So, welcome to the podcast, Mike. First Thank you. of all, can you tell us a bit about your background? How did you develop your interest in French rugby league? Um, well, putting two things together, basically, one rugby league and two French, because obviously I'd already been interested for a long time in, in rugby league since, since a kid, really. But I spent most of my working life teaching French. Um, and once I started to write about rugby league in the early 80s, translations started to come my way. And it developed from there, I suppose. I, I, I found, myself, found myself more in contact with the French game, or as much in contact with the French game as with the British game. And that's how it developed. And then I found the story of the, the Vichy ban, um, sort of mid-80s, and wanted to explore that further, and and things went from there. So yeah, so your first book was the uh, well, your first book on French rugby league was the Forbidden Game. I'm sure probably most people who are listening to this are at least vaguely familiar with the events that led up to the 1941 ban by the Vichy government. But could you just for those who aren't, or for those who need a recap, can you just sort of recapitulate what actually happened with, from the birth of French rugby league all the way up to the 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 ban by the Vichy government? In 1934, when French Rugby League was first launched, it was against the background of French Rugby Union having been ostracised by the RFU, basically, what was called the International Board, but as you well know, it was more or less the RFU. Um, And that created the vacuum in which Rugby League was able to thrive to the extent that the public flocked to it because it was new, because it was exciting, because it was spectacular, which didn't always apply to Rugby Union, to be honest. And with the excommunication from the Five Nations tournament, Rugby Union at international level wasn't really going anywhere. So that explained the great rise of French Rugby League to the point where in 1939, they came to England and beat England at St. Helens, which was something that the French Rugby Union team had never managed to do, to win on English soil. And this had happened within five years of the of Rugby League taking off there. So that was a that was a, a major a major coup. But the public were well well behind the game by that stage and it was played in a very attractive way. A lot of stars from Rugby Union flocked to the game as well, which had uh, Rugby Union in a state of some desperation, certainly at um, administrative level. So that when war broke out in 1940, it was no time at all before the Vichy government having been installed, before Rugby League was got rid of, basically. Um, Because within Vichy, an important department was set up um, to oversee sport, to revitalize French youth, to make them uh, less capable of being overrun by foreign armies in the future. And there was a massive amount of money poured into it, even in wartime, so that a number of major sports really benefited. But of course, Rugby League did not, having been completely banned from October 1940 onwards, which gave Rugby Union the chance to regroup, reassemble and get some of its strength back so that by the end of the war, there was a slight increase in the number of rugby union clubs. And of course, Rugby League started again from zero, having had more than 200 teams in existence before war broke out. 
So it was the Vichy ban was enormously important and still to this day cannot be underestimated in terms of its impact on the future of uh, French rugby league. I think one of the things that's interesting, and I've had people say this in the past, that, well, Vichy opposed all professional sport. And so it didn't. So it, it also stopped professional soccer. But the case of rugby league was different, wasn't it? Because of the, the role that rugby union played within a certain section of French society. Well, the idea that uh, it was banned because it was a professional sport um, was, was simply a pretext. Yes, uh, the Vichy government was a very reactionary organisation in which, uh, which, which looked back to, to previous previous times where amateurism, um, as it had been in England in the home counties, say, or at a certain middle class level, was, was the ideal. But rugby league was the only sport to be banned. I mean, Soccer continued in a professional sort of way. I mean, they they said that it would only it would only be uh, allowed to continue as a professional sport for a certain length of time. But in fact, it continued all the way through. And the impact of the ban on professional sport across the board was really very very small, except for rugby league, which suffered the consequences as we know. After the war, when the war finished, you would have thought that. Here's a sport that's been banned by the Vichy government, which has been roundly denounced as a purge of Vichy sports in the French government and throughout French society. So how come rugby league didn't benefit from, from that tremendous change and reaction against the, the collaborationist government? Um, yes, you would have thought that rugby league would benefit um, to some tune, but it never happened. And the reason was that the, the revolution in many aspects of French life that had been hoped for uh, the end of the war, liberation never came about. And so many practices in many walks of life continued after the war as if the war had never taken place. Uh, and this was true to a large extent within within sport. The goals edict from Algiers as head of the Free French in 1943, that measures taken by Vichy would be, would be overturned. Well, that did happen to a certain extent in that clubs, rugby league clubs were allowed to to reform, and of course they did, but it didn't apply to federations, and that's why the Rugby League Federation, the, the Ligue Française de Rugby à 13, had such great difficulty in achieving recognition, recognition in those early post-war years. So it, it's tempting to think that Rugby League was a beneficiary, should have been a ven- beneficiary, certainly, of that anti-Vichy sentiment in the immediate post-war years, but, but it didn't come about. And that's because the the people who were in charge of French sport remained pretty much the same as before the war, as during the war. They were all there. Wasn't it the case that when um, when Paul Barrier, the, the president of the French Rugby League, went to um, went to negotiate with the, the Federation of Sport that oversaw all of French sport immediately after the war, wasn't it the case that it was actually run by somebody from Rugby Union? Yes, there was. The chairman of the... Rugby Union Federation later took over as head of the the committee, which, as you say, oversaw French sport. It's now called the Olympic Committee. It wasn't called that then, but it's effectively the, the same organisation. Yeah, so it was a massive cartel, and not just Rugby Union against Rugby League either. Rugby Union saw to it that other federations, athletics, for example, which was uh, had amateur ideals too, if a rugby league player wanted to compete in athletics, say, he, he would be banned just as if he wanted to play rugby union. 
that's how it went. Uh, it was absolutely iniquitous and very much against the spirit of sport, of course. Wasn't there also restrictions on the number of professionals and whether league could be played in, in schools? There was, there was a lot of conditions that were attached to the uh, revival of the game after the war. There were conditions. As far as rugby league being played in schools were, was concerned, it never had that opportunity. During the Vichy period, the major team sports also a massive boost in their numbers, which go, as Robert Fasolet has explained, which goes to explain their importance at international level now. If you think of the case of handball, for example, uh, in which France is now a major player in, on the international scene, it was virtually unknown in France before the war, uh, apart from in Alsace, until the Germans introduced it. And that sport also became a beneficiary of Vichy's insistence on it being played in schools alongside rugby union, football, basketball and volleyball, whereas rugby league was entirely excluded. And, and the schools are so important in the development of any sport. And it's only in very recent years that rugby league has started to make some kind of inroads, though very tentatively, into the school's programme. In all that time. One thing that's quite surprising, given all the disadvantages that the game had in the 1940s, by the time we get to 1950, and particularly 1951, they have this incredible national team that basically mm. become the world champion, unofficial world champions, yeah. and allows them on the back of that to, to initiate the World Cup, which the French had talked about since the 1930s. So yeah. can you just talk a bit about that golden age of French rugby league and how that related to what had, ha what had gone on before? Um, yeah, it was a golden age. In fact, it's, it's talked of as the second golden age. The, the, the previous one was fairly brief. It was around about 38, 39, just before war intervened. But certainly after the war, it was a, a wonderful period. And of course, rugby league was carried along by that post-war euphoria where, where people were just happy to, to get out, play sport, watch sport and so on. But they, but rugby league was able to attract a large number of top class players from rugby union, and the, a similar thing happened in the other direction as well. It must be added. But the style of play was spectacular, free flowing. Uh, new clubs sprang up all over the place to the extent that the game was played. Uh, I think this is the only period in the in the game's history in France was played in five major cities. That's to say. Paris, which has always been a difficult place for rugby league to get a foothold in, Paris, Toulouse, uh, Lyon, uh, Marseille and Bordeaux. Nowadays, there's only Toulouse operating anywhere near top level um, at the moment. So it was immensely important in, in, the, in, in the sense that the major cities have been brought on board, even if they didn't all survive for all that length of time. The game started to spread. But then it it kind of wound down to a to to a bit of a trickle really about ten years further on. But we'll we'll talk about that later. In 1951, the 1951, the tour to Australia was groundbreaking in many senses. In that it was the first time a French team had toured Australia. The Aussies had had never seen um, a French team play any sport there before. Nobody knew how they would fare. Most people thought they'd be lucky to, to come out of it with a slight loss on the tour financially. Maybe they wouldn't win many games. In fact, it was just a resounding success because the Australian players were completely bamboozled by the, by the French style of play. They were the opposite of Australia's orthodox style 
power style uh, of the time, uh, giving full reign to to all those wonderful, wonderfully talented players that that they had at the time. And not not just in the backs either. The forwards were were able to match the Aussie forwards more than match the Aussie forwards. In fact, with explosive second rowers like uh, Eli Bruce and uh, Edouard Poncinet, for example. And in the backs, you've got Puyo Barrett full back and uh, Gaston Combe in the centre and Jackie Merquet as well. Cantone, Contrasin on the wings, so on and so forth. It was just a, it was just a top class side from from number one down to number thirteen. They repeated that in 1955, which is often overlooked. They not only did they they win the series and very handsomely in, in, inflicting the biggest ever defeat on Australia in 51, but they did the same thing again in 1955 winning the series when at one point they looked absolutely down and out and yet they came back and again uh, shocked the Aussies. So two two major triumphs there. And then, of course, in 1954, they also organised the World Cup and lost unexpectedly to pretty much a, a makeshift Great Britain side. What happened for the game to lose that impetus then? Because certainly by 54-55, it seems to be on the verge of becoming uh, you know, a major, if not the major, French sport. Yeah, and a lot of reasons have been put forward to that. Some people have said, well, if they had won that World Cup final, maybe the success would have been so uh, widely touted that it would have brought a lot more people on board. I, I tend to doubt that, actually. It's, it's also been said that uh, rugby league was slow to take up on television, which wasn't actually true, or at least was no different from any other sport at the time. But what did start to happen was that rugby union started to get a bit of success, beating the South Africans in South Africa, beating the All Blacks a bit later on, and also winning uh, the Grand Slam for the first time ever. And because rugby union was seen as a more... Um, let's say, um, a state-sponsored sport, in a sense, because de Gaulle, amongst many other presidents, backed it uh, with his personal seal of approval. Rugby Union was really in the driving seat from that point on, and they did exploit television with the help of a a commentator that everybody uh, identified with, who had actually started out in, in rugby league. But I do believe that the major reason for rugby league's decline, that is, was that rugby union was much more firmly implanted in far more communities than than rugby league let's say and that meant that they had a wider pool of players to draw on when rugby league's money ran out as it as it did in towards the 70s in terms of signing new players from rugby union then the game started to to look inward on itself uh, but it was it was the school's development uh, program that, that I believe uh, did it for, for Rugby League. Wasn't it also the case that Rugby Union recruited a lot of Rugby League players, including a lot of people who we now think of as all-time greats of French Rugby Union? I'm thinking particularly of Joe Masso, who was in the World Rugby Union Hall of Fame, but came from a, a very strong Rugby League family and, and had actually played amateur Rugby League for France against England at one point. Yeah. Yeah, Philippe Sella uh, came into rugby union from rugby league, having learnt the get, having learnt rugby at Lesignan. There are several examples going further back as well. The famous example, of course, was Yves Bergugnon, who played with Toulouse and was recruited by Stade Toulousain in the uh, mid forties, which created a huge furore because he was uh, selected for the for the France national side at scrum half. He was their their finest player there. Uh, match winner, um, and yet had only ever played rugby league up until the point when they signed him. And this is the amateur game, of course, which is supposed not to recruit from from other sports where 
players have been professional or professionalised. So the rugby union was complicit in, in French rugby union's rise by simply turning a blind eye to the shamaterism that had gone on before the war and continued to do so in the, the immediate post-war era and and for many years after that. What's your assessment of where the French game is at the moment? Because the fantastic success of the Dragons at Wembley last season, it gives a sense that perhaps the game is actually beginning to find its feet again after, well, almost four decades of, of struggling. Do you think that's the case? What else does the French game need to do? As far as their own domestic championship is concerned, well, they produce some exciting games and there's a lot of spirit and a lot of passion within the game. But it is nowhere near Super League standard, unfortunately. And there isn't the, the money around in simple terms to invest in it, bring more players into the game and make young people want to compete just at that level. Thankfully, we have the Dragons, which gives a pathway, a professional pathway for young players to lose as well to a certain extent. But far more teams, far more clubs need to modernise themselves, need to professionalise themselves. And it's it's very hard in the current economic climate that prevails in France at the moment for that to happen. I think on that note of guarded optimism or cautious optimism, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, I want to say thanks, Matt. That was absolutely fascinating. I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy listening to that. So it just leaves me to wrap up and say I hope that you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby League Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. Mike, I don't think you're on Twitter, are you yet? I was at one stage, but I'm not at the moment. That's probably not a bad thing. Um, <laughs> most importantly, uh, just to remind everybody that Mike's book is called The Struggle and the Daring, The Remaking of French Rugby League, and it's published by Scratching Shed Publishing. Make sure you don't miss it, and it's available from the Scratching Shed website and other outlets that I'm sure you're aware of. So once again, thanks to you, Mike, and until next Thank week, you. thanks for listening.